San Alfonso Pueblo. Pueblo? Pueblo. I broke it. I broke the word. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores women in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to learn about a Native American ceramic artist and an American animal behaviorist. The only name I know who does something similar would be, um, was it Temple Garden? Temple Grandin? Yeah, I'll probably do her next time. Temple Grandin. Would she be considered an animal behavioralist? Behaviorist, yeah. Okay. That and uh, Caesar with his He can go fuck himself and we can talk about that later, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I mean, he's better than the cat whisperer guy, right? Yeah. Oh, they are both shit, but okay. <laughs> what? No, come on. Caesar's got way better hair. No, okay, no. They're both, I cannot condone either one of these guys. <laughs> That's just my frame of reference. I'm trying to relate, damn it. Okay, so here's here's what it is, though. The reason I don't condone the cat guy is because he's kind of a he's just a tool. He's just a tool. Like he likes cats. <laughs> he's kind of dumb. Uh he's just no thank yeah, you. Yeah, well. But the reason I don't like Cesar Milan is because he permanently fucks up dogs and we gave him money for it. Which we'll get into later. Okay. All right. I will save my questions for then. Because, <laughs> um yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, trust okay. me. I've got a whole bunch of information for you. And insight that you never thought that you would need to learn about people who work in the animal field. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm glad mine's the warm and fuzzy this episode. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a few moments for sure. But let's talk about your lady first. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, this will be a fun one. Um, okay. <laughs> See, all right. This sucks because I had written in my little notes to open, quote, Today's episode is a little sad. Yeah, but then what comes after? But in a good way. Yeah, well, not in your way. No. You're going to bring down the mood of this thing. I'm going to bring it down. I'm sorry. Well, on my end, things are a little sad because we're going on winter break, which means this is the last episode of the year. Don't don't be sad, guys. We'll be back, and I'll bring you happy stories. More interesting. We'll just keep coming at you with super interesting ladies because that's why you come back every two weeks. And you guys do. And right now, Denver's leading the charge. I don't know anyone there, but you guys are cool. Thanks, Denver. And everywhere else. You guys are really awesome. (laughs) Um, So, yes, we will be back in January, and I can't wait. I'm super excited to kind of revamp, take a little bit of time to recharge, and kind of keep on going because I've barely made a dent in my gigantic list of women to do. Oh, man. I'm not as organized as she is. I usually just pick my lady like a few days before we record. But I'm never going to run out of scientists. I'm not even going to lie to you. No, this has been really fun. And I've super enjoyed doing this with you, with our little baby. With our baby. One year old. I know. I know. Oh, my goodness. Better than an actual baby because it doesn't poop on us. Oh, that's what I was thinking. No crying. No pooping. Some late nights. But that's with research. Not because of, like, colic or anything. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I mean, I'll take that. <laughs> You'll take that. Yes. So we will be back in January. We're super excited. But for this month, on my end, I'm doing round two of Native American artists. Woot! Yeah. Like I kind of mentioned last episode, actually, most episodes that we do uh, as America, we have pretty messed up racial history. So I thought, you know what? Now's a great time to really research some uh, Native American artists because honestly, I really couldn't name anyone. But now I can. Now I can name one person, and you can too. And that person is Milena. Uh, Louisa. Yes. Louisa Kieser, also known as Datsolali. There you go. All yes. right. Yes, we're I knew her name. We're learning. No, I thought you were asking me to name the one that, the lady that you were doing now. And I was like, I don't know. We- oh, God, no. <laughs> I haven't even told you her name yet. No. Exactly. That'd be weird. That'd be, I'm, I'm, I mean, we're connected, but we're not that connected. 
Well, we're, you're connected to our shared Google Drive in which my notes are up on. So oh, yeah. I don't, you could surprise me. I don't pay enough attention for that. That's how much she loves me. <laughs> All right. Um, so I'm excited about who I'm going to cover. And also, I just want to say that as a sculptor, I could have done a sculptor every single episode this year. I'm aware, but I bullied you into doing something else. No, no. I love you guys. And that's why I didn't, even though I totally could have, right? And also, I've waited almost an entire year to feature my first ceramic artist. I'm so proud of you. I know. Now, for the person I'm doing, two reasons I love her work. One, I'm a ceramic artist, so I'm totally biased. And two, her work is all black, and I'm still totally a goth kid, so it's a win-win. Oh my god, woman. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. That's it. That's all it takes. You're such a nerd and I love you. <laughs> oh, just wait. I'm I'm not going to geek out too hard this episode with all the ceramic stuff. I could, but I'm not going to. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. All I know um, is there can't be air in the clay. That's a starting point. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. I'm going to tell one of my favorite Milana stories right now. Oh, God. All right. So, at... Our old place. I had my little studio room on the top floor. And then I had my little baby kiln um, on the main floor, right? And so Milena poked her head in one evening. And uh, she was like, oh, hey, what are you doing? I was like, oh, you know, I'm about to finish up this piece and get it going in the kiln. Um, but I'm going to be done soon. I'm going to, you know, go make a cup of tea. And Milena was like, all right, cool. Oh, I can just, I can take care of that for you. And I was like, all right, sweet. Now I'm bougie bastard. So my tea kettle has multiple settings, right? Oh, I know. <laughs> so I tell her, I'm like, all right, you know, I'm. it's herbal tea, so this is the temperature setting. It's like the top left button. That's when you press. And, you know, I'm like, I'll be downstairs soon. Um, Thanks. You know, I appreciate it. She's like, all right, cool. So she goes downstairs and a little bit of time passes. And then it's, you were calling up. I forget what. It was like, Milena or Megan, what button do I press again? And I'm like, it's the one, it's like the top far left. Just press the button. I'll be right down. And you're like, it's making a weird beeping sound. <laughs> it's like, it's a kettle. <laughs> what is she doing to my tea kettle? It doesn't, I mean, there's like one beep. Megan, I, what does this message say on it? I can't make it out. I was like, oh my God. <gasps> the kiln. <laughs> oh no. You're like, oh, I'll get the kiln going. I was like, oh my God, no, the kettle, the kettle. I didn't think it was going to be that difficult. You just turn on a button, right? Apparently not. I mean, you were very sweet. I was like, oh, my goodness, woman, back away from the kill. (laughs) I don't do art. (laughs) I know, but I love you. And now you can comfortably handle both the kiln and the kettle, and we're good. We're good. (laughs) Oh, no. It's fine. Yes. So be mindful of kiln buttons and also no air bubbles in your clay. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, last episode. It's late 1800s and uh, we're going back there. We're going back in time today. That's fair. Yeah, we're not straying too far from where we were. So we're back in the 1800s. We're going back west. This time we're focusing in New Mexico in 1887. So we're going to an area 23 miles north of Santa Fe. And it's here in 1887 that our artist Maria Montoya was born. Maria was born in a tribe that had lived in this area since, like, 1300s. Wait, the 1300s? Yeah, like oh. CE. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they've they've got a little bit of time on us white settlers. And it, it was renamed by the Spanish settlers slash invaders in 1617 to San Ildefonso. Yes. Okay, there you go. I'm learning. I'm trying. She was the oldest of five girls to parents Thomas and Re- oh, Jesus. R-E-Y-E-C-I-T-A. Reyesita. Reyesita. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. your assistance. Anytime. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. And it's this kind of, it's like a very dry scrubland desert area. Um, we've got like the traditional Pueblo houses that this region is known for. So like multi-story homes kind of built of like adobe and the earth. Uh, They've got really great rich red color, you know, from the local soil that they're built of. And unlike last episode, this particular tribe, they're not nomadic. 
at all. Weather is like fairly tolerable year round. So the homes are fixed. Uh, Basket weaving is not really a craft that flourishes here because pottery is what kind of substitute it. Uh, You know, because they don't have to, you know, they're not automatic, they're not carrying things. So you can have these heavier vessels. In New Mexico, they just put water in the earth and go from there. Yeah, like the clay is right there. You just got to dig it out. Like, it, I mean, it's a natural resource that you have to work with. So a very rich history of ceramics in this area, which, again, ceramic major, ceramic artist, I'm all about. And even more so because it's terracotta in this area, which you guys don't care about, but I do because I work in terracotta. And that's like the red clay that you use for bricks. I learned that, too. She has a very specific mixture of terracotta. I tried to get her terracotta for Christmas, and I was like, just tell me what you use because I don't want to fuck this up. That's a very sweet sentiment, and I want that to be a Hallmark movie, terracotta for Christmas. (laughs) I'd watch it. I would. That's better than a prince for Christmas. Oh, yes. Yes. 100%. (laughs) So, yes. Very rich history of ceramics in this area, and... When Maria was born and coming of age in the late 1800s, her community and its history, it was threatened. Now, once this community boasted over 3,000 people, but when, you know, she was young, when she was like, you know, about 10 or so, it had dwindled down to 80. Oh, wow. Yeah. 80? Yeah. 80 people. Oh, my God. That's like the Tennessee town that my white family is from. Oh, (laughs) jeez. You blink, you miss it. You know what? I actually, I haven't checked to see what current... Um, population levels are now, they're better than that. I hope so. Yeah. So there's a variety of factors that go into it, but basically you can blame it on white guys. Yeah. That's usually what I do. Yeah. That's a fair assessment in life. (laughs) Now, the first big thing is disease. Yeah. We've got the Spanish coming in. Mm -hmm. So with them, they brought a whole slew of, um, you know, pathogens that these people just weren't, had never been exposed to and were really vulnerable to. And that wiped out a good bit of people. Now, as you might have guessed, especially if you listened to the last episode at all, being Native American during this time is not pleasant, like at all. Typically, just about anywhere in the United States, the government is looking to and does force people off of their ancestral lands to new areas where they're they're geographically, economically, and culturally, you know, disadvantaged. And this did affect Maria and her family. And part of that meant being educated in a U.S. government boarding school, the Santa Fe Indian School that opened up when Maria was three. Like, since the settling of Westerners to the United States, there's always been this, quote, Indian problem, as in, like, how do we get rid of them? And post- Civil War, there is an introduction of these Indian boarding schools by the government across, you know, the nation, basically with the sentiment of kill the Indian, save the man. Yeah, I think we uh, we hit on that last week. It wasn't just like Luisa's tribe. It was everybody's tribe was getting hit with these government mandated schools. Oh, yeah. I mean, the repercussions we're still dealing with today. Right. But um, it was a systematic approach to assimilate and colonize these people. Right. And thankfully, it didn't work in Maria's case because, I mean, her and her four younger sisters, they were sent away to this school. There, they were forbidden to speak their native language, Tewa. Um, They weren't even encouraged to speak Spanish at all. It was English. That's what they wanted. Yikes. And, you know, thankfully, Maria got out of school. And one thing that had always remained with her was her interest in pottery and her love of it. Growing up, she watched her aunt and one of the best Tewa potters, uh, Martina Montoya, which no relation. She watched them growing up as they were making. Uh, she said of it, quote, nobody teaches pottery. It was just a very ingrained craft within her community that women traditionally handled. And so she saw it all the time when she was growing up. Come 1904, Maria 17, She's making pots. She's doing ceramics. She gets married to um, a man from the the region, Julian Martinez. Big for them. I mean, they're freshly married. They're really young. They are included in the 1904 St. Louis World Fair. Wait, really? Yeah. Isn't that a bit of a jump? Yeah. Well, lots of things were introduced at the St. Louis World Fair in 1904, um, which I didn't know food-wise. We've got the hot dog, the hamburger, Hmm. peanut butter, cotton candy, the ice cream cone, like, everyone loves ice cream. I love ice cream. And then, cherry on top, there are also 100% racist living dioramas, of which Maria and her husband were included. Oh, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. So the organizers of the World Fair wanted to showcase, quote, primitive cultures. Wow. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. I think this might be actually worse than last week. <sighs> Like, already, as far as, like, how they're showcasing 
uh, it's yes because last week our artist was born she about 20 30 years before maria um so there's lots of similar overlaps and so it's a very similar climate racially the racism is slightly different and maria comes out at least financially better because of it oh okay yeah so last last episode was a little sad because it was someone who was just blatantly financially taken advantage of right this week this woman maria she's fucking savvy and she uses it to her advantage which is great to be a little shock about okay yes that's what we want yeah yes racism but i mean hey we pretty much have that every episode you guys should know what to expect by now really yeah so we've got this anthropological exhibition displaying people from all over the world, not just the United States, in which the organizers, again, have deemed primitive. And so Maria and her husband were representative of the Pueblo people. Pueblo? Pueblo. I'm so sorry. Pueblo. Pueblo. I know. Lo siento. Soy Americana. (laughs) Espanol es muy, muy mal. You just said Spanish is very, very bad. You forgot to put me in front of that. (laughs) Si. Exactly. Sorry, everyone. I'm sorry. Um, so people would come. Visitors would come and watch, and they would, you know, witness them. And like on Maria's end, like she's just, she's honestly sharing with them just how they live. All right, cool. You'll get to learn about me, and I'll get to see you guys and see how things are in St. Louis. And no one came up to him. It was like, hey, we're racist bastard. Do you want to participate in being gawked at? Like no one was quite like that. Right. But that's essentially what it was. There is a photographer. I can't remember the name of it who was known for going from reservation to reservation and trying to take documentary photographs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at this point, they were, like, dressed as an American because they were assimilated from a young age with these schools that they didn't wear a lot of traditional Indian garb. So he actually kept some things that were supposed to look like what Americans thought Indians were supposed to look like and would make his subjects wear those clothes, even if they weren't, like, correct. Oh, my God. Okay. I could spend a half an hour talking on that theme, theme, like, somewhat specific to Maria and her case. Right. Because that was such a big thing at this time. So, I mean, was she at least wearing her own traditional clothes, or did they try to make it a little more flashy? From what material about it I was able to come across, it didn't sound like they were forcing a manufactured ideal onto her. Okay. I mean, again, she was just like, okay, I'll come and we'll show you, like, how we go about our day and what we do, and which is cool, but, like, everyone looked at it as, like, they're so primitive, they're so backwards, look at them, and, like I said, people talked shit, thinking that Marie and her husband, like, wouldn't even understand the English they're speaking. Yeah. They did, because guess what? They fucking spoke English, right. too. Right, 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 right. Like, they only spoke <laughs> three languages. You know, they're... <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's another that's another thing I could get in as far as like people coming over to this country and then learning like our language and then getting shit for it because they're not speaking it properly. But they know more languages than most Americans. So I know like Susan, calm down your tits. You go move to Ukraine in your 30s and you learn like fucking Russian. (laughs) Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Um, So this is just a little sample of like how the general white American population felt towards Native Americans at this time. They're backwards. They're uneducated. And in need of something we all know and love, a white savior. Uh, No. No. It's really funny because I totally thought you'd make a sound like that when you heard that. Wait, which one? You going, uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Who wants to see me cosplay as Tina Belcher? Oh, jeez. <laughs> no one? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. <laughs> uh, I mean, you do like touching butts. Damn straight. Let's see. Yes, yes, yes. All right. So from that experience, Maria and her husband, they come back home to New Mexico and... I mean, they're young. They're looking to start a family. That's exactly what they do. Julian is working with his father-in-law as a farmer, but at the time, there's very little money in that. It's very hard. And their second child, a girl, dies as, as an infant in 1907. Oh, and no. And only 19 at this time. They're, like, they're really young. Oh. 
And from this, Julian develops a drinking problem that eventually morphs into alcoholism later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something that stays with him for the rest of his life. Now, study work does come in the form of an excavation team in the area led by the Museum of New Mexico director, archaeology professor, Dr. Edgar Hewitt. And Maria, she convinces her husband to join, which, I mean, twofold. One, he's got work. Great. Two, he's going to be busy and he's going to be away from the drink. Mm-hmm. Right. Even better. Um, and that's all while he's acting as a digger on this excavation team focused on digging up uh, ancient native artifacts in the area. And the bulk of it is pottery that they they find. Traditional earthenware, so like earthy colored clay, lots of red and beige colors with like more earth color accents, lots of geometric designs. But there are a few pieces that they uncover that haven't really been found in the area before and that these are pottery shards that are black. So Dr. Hewitt's team, they ask around and they're looking for the best potter in the area to try to recreate that same look. And it was Maria who they asked. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, She was the quickest and she was the most skilled potter in her community. And when they asked her, she was completely over the moon. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. Game on. That's just like a challenge. She gets to do something different. Yeah. To try, you know, kind of I mean, these are ideally like the same materials that these people were working with now as in hundreds of years ago. So it's a bit of a fun puzzle to be like, okay, what processes did they employ to achieve that technique? Right. Now, I'm going to be good, but here's the quick and dirty on how Pueblo pottery is made. Pueblo? Pueblo? Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Just go. Just keep going. All right. So essentially... Local clay is dug up because there, there's a lot of it in this region, usually aged to make it a little bit more plastic and easier to work with. The pottery they do is not made on a traditional pottery wheel at all. It's all done by hand coiling. Okay. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah, as you should. Now, for those who are not familiar with that technique, essentially coils are rolled out and then they're just kind of built up on top of one another. So almost like 3D printing, you know, layer by layer. And then after it's made into whatever, you know, form, be it a a tall bowl or a cup the surface inside it out is completely smoothed out so it just looks like one big piece and then it's pit fired right so you might have a little bit of glaze work on your stuff before it goes into the pit firing dig a big hole throw in well don't throw in your pottery you'll break it you just you cover it with combustible materials and you just let that sucker burn for hours and ideally your temperature is getting up to about 1500 degrees fahrenheit jesus christ yeah. And then after things cool, you can, you know, kind of unearth it. And, you know, that's when your work has gone from being clay physically manifest into ceramics. It's like magic. Ta-da. Dried out clay. It is not dried out. It's a whole chemical process that it undergoes. It's complete physical molecular change. Okay. Oh, are you going to teach me about chemistry now? No, I'm not because that was my weakest spot in my chemistry <laughs> class, my ceramic tech class. <laughs> Think if I was lucky, I got a B in it. Oh my god, you gotta you gotta give me like a like a chemical reaction equation. I gotta see that. There's quite a few people who I graduated with. They have that tattooed on their person. Oh, that's so cool. I need to look at it now. All right. Well, I will share that with you later. Okay. Um, but I'm apparently a terrible ceramic major because I, I don't have that memorized because I don't care. <laughs> I don't. You know, I'm pretty sure Maria didn't care either. No, no, that's not what she was really interested about. And this technique of firing the work, I mean, it's it's something that's been used across all cultures. I mean, literally since the beginning of time. And Dr. Hewitt's team, they're asking her to do something new. Right. And she totally does, which is pretty cool. It's like an artist's wet dream. It it really is. And she knows how to play it against kind of the stereotypical cultural ideals about Native Americans. So in the process, she makes good work. And then she makes a shit ton of money off of it, too. Very cool. Which makes getting to research her and sharing her with you guys, like, so satisfying. Now, into the 19-teens, Maria and her husband, they're working together on their pottery. So Maria, she's she's the one making these pieces. And her husband, he's the one, he's adding some glaze designs. And then he's also helping out with the firing process, too. But really, the making she's in control of. And, like, during this time, like we talked about last episode, Native American work, it's all the rage right now. So since the end of the Civil War in 1865, white settlers are moving west. We've got railroads expanding, which means tourism. There's the arts and craft movement, which just emphasizes handmade objects, you know, as opposed to industrial ones. We've got primitism, 
which essentially white fascination with non-white art, um, which included Native American art. And then we've got feminism being a thing. What? I know. See, it's this little slightly different dynamic that kind of comes into it. And all of this intersects in the Indian arts and crafts. Everyone's looking to make a buck off of this trend. And I mentioned feminism because it's mostly women buying and also leading the organizations to, quote, revive these native traditions. I mean, here comes the white savior complex. Mm. Yeah, things get a little messy. So essentially, white middle class women are investing in native art, like pottery. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, they're aligning themselves with traditionally feminine domestic crafts, so far non-threatening. And in promoting it, they're also establishing themselves as having cultural authority in the public sphere. No. Right? Well, because that's an area women are really shut out of. And so by aligning themselves with something essentially safe and domestic and women-oriented, that's that's how they work their way in, right? I, I mean, a lot of dynamics are going in. But the main gist being that these Native American women making the art were passive, while these educated white women were the ones actively giving it meaning by introducing it to America as a whole. Mm, such bullshit. And author Margaret Jacobs, she covers this idea really well in her book, Engendered Encounters, Feminism and Pueblo Cultures, which that'll be in the show notes if anyone's curious. But so that's a whole another dynamic kind of superimposed upon this. And I mean, this was done by pushing these, quote, ancient arts that they felt they were responsible for saving. But that only helped to entrench stereotypes about Native Americans that were fed to the tourists. And that was kind of like what you were describing with that photographer. These are things that helped feed that narrative. Right. There is one Southwest brochure that touted, quote, the Indian lives as much as he did when Columbus sailed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A little problematic. Oh, my God. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Columbus sailed over here thinking that it was India and then slaughtered thousands of Native Americans. Don't forget the raping. Oh, my Jesus. Yeah. So a little problematic. Um, and Maria, she was navigating all of this. Like, here's one example I came across. So there's a woman. She, like, learned ceramics on the East Coast, traditional middle class. And she came over for a summer to teach women in one of the Pueblo communities how to make ceramic work. What? But Yeah. But they... An entire summer. She showed them how to make and to glaze ceramic work. And she went home and she was like, I feel like I really made a difference. Uh, and the women that she she taught, they all <laughs> gathered together after she left and they threw the work off a cliff. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it was it was easier to like go along oh and to work God. around her than to, confront, to her. confront her. Yeah, because these were these white women who were coming in and totally had this attitude of like, we know better, like we're educated, like we do things the right way. Um, Again, this like white savior complex and Maria had to circumvent and deal with that too. Oh my God. What'd she do? Yeah. yeah. And one thing I thought was funny, so she had a firing mishap in one of her, you know, her pit firings and it just colored some of the pottery. So she was like, ah, oh, shit. Like, so she stashed it away because she's like, I can't use that crap. And there's this collector who came through who wanted more pottery. And she was like, I've got some special pieces for you. And the guy ate it up. And it turned out in the, the pit firing, one of the organic compounds they were using to feed the fire was manure. Mm. And they had used too much. So she like literally gave him her shit pot. Oh, my God. I love her. And that became like an in-joke in the house because people kept coming and asking for the same thing. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, I just – I think she probably had such a good sharp wit to her. She's great. Oh, man. Now, Maria's in her early 30s when her and her husband, they developed the work that she's most well known for. And that's her black-on-black wear, which I'll be honest, it's sexy as fuck. So, uh, yeah, that's what makes the inner goth kid in me really happy. <laughs> I love you so much. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. So Maria's pottery, you know, it varies in sizes and forms. But the thing she becomes known for is this technique in which she's polished the surface of her work to this smooth, shiny black finish. And on top of that, her husband would paint in slip, which is a type of glaze, to create this matte black design on top of the black gloss. 
Oh. Yeah. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw an image and were like, oh, I've seen that before. Let me look. Let me look. Let me look. Oh, oh, I see it. Oh, that is a sexy design. Like, I just want to rub it. I know that sounds weird, but I, other ceramic people will understand. You just want to touch it. No, I want to touch it. Yeah, it just, it seems like it has such a smooth, sensual surface to it. Oh, that's great. That is great. I, one, they're lovely, and two, they sold like mad. Yeah, because they're so beautiful. I think they're great. So um, you can get small ones on eBay, but they start at like a few thousand dollars, so I can't justify buying one. Oh, Jesus. But um, yeah, I think they're really amazing. And one thing that's funny is that they made a lot of money off of it. They were the first ones in their community to buy a car, and it was a black car, and her husband painted matte black designs on top of it, <laughs> just like their pottery. That's pretty great. I think it's pretty pimping. They're branding themselves, obviously. <laughs> and that's actually, that's that's in part why they sold so well. So adjusted for inflation, they were making over $5,000 a month in 1923. What is that? Yeah. She was able to afford a Spanish maid for her children. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh so my God. her annual sales in 1924, it was equal to 70% of the entire agricultural income of their community. Oh my God. And like even better, she was directly selling to the public. Like there wasn't a middleman that she was going through. So she was making the money. Oh, what? Like no one was ripping her off at all. Oh, that's so cool. And like you said, part of it was because she was building her brand. You know, she had connections to the Museum of New Mexico because of that research dig and who her and her husband knew. Um, they went out and they would do demonstrations a lot and share the type of work they were doing. And with Native art so popular, she was really able to put a face to her work that just it sold super well. That's awesome. Good for her. That's yeah. like for real for to like stand her ground. Just smart. She's just a smart businesswoman. And a, her art, you really need to check this out on our show notes, guys. Like, it's beautiful. It's, I think, yeah, I think it's sexy and it's wonderful. And it's not often I describe art as sexy, but. Sexy. Like, there's something about it. Yeah, there's some little magic there. Yeah. Yeah. So even with the depression hitting in the 1930s, like, Maria was doing really well and also starting to gain nationwide attention for her work. Now, Things did hit a rough spot when her husband went missing in 1943 one day. Wait, what? Yeah. Do we know where he went? Um, yeah, he was found near the mountains where he was born, uh, dead. Oh, no. It's in part, he might have gone a bit on a bender because, you know, again, he's full on alcoholic at this point. And, um, yeah, so that was a little rough. Um, Maria, she's 56. They've been together for almost 40 years. Oh, no. Poor Maria. Yeah. And she's grieving, but Maria also didn't let that stop her from her work. Right. So after her husband's death, she worked with her daughter-in-law, who her husband had taught, you know, his painting techniques. Um, And later on, she worked with her sons in keeping the process that she had developed with Julian going. And one thing that was really cool is that Maria, she decided against keeping this black-on-black technique to herself. She shared it with the other potters in her community. Good. She's yeah. giving back, yeah. So what resulted is the entire San Ildefonso Pueblo became known for that style. Like, it wasn't just her anymore. It was her entire community that they were making work on that same vein. And she even let people sign her name to their works because it meant that with her name on it, those pieces would sell for more. I mean, I just think it's really funny because Maria saw firsthand how these white outsiders were coming in and trying to take charge of like their cultural history. Mm -hmm. I feel like her letting everyone in on her technique was a way of getting back, you know, reclaiming what was theirs and also making money off of it in the process, which I'm like all about. Making their economy just that much stronger. Yeah, like they're profiting off of the white people who are trying to trivialize their work to begin with. Right. Which I think is absolutely great. Now, Maria, she did retire from her work in her early 80s. Um, she'd been working with one of her sons, but he passed away unexpectedly in, her, in his 50s. And after that, she stopped making, but she kept teaching. So all her life, family was central, but now it's the 1970s. And at this point, she's outlived a good many of her kids. Oh. Yeah, that was really hard for Maria. But what is rewarding is that in her very long career, 
she saw professional recognition for her work. So she received a National Endowment for the Arts grant. She got two honorary doctorates. She received an award from the National Council for the Education of Ceramic Arts, or NSICA, which for those of us in the ceramic world is a really big name. I can't stop hearing that acronym. I know. Ever. <laughs> They're coming to Richmond for their next conference oh, in March. I'm you're totally all about that. I'm really excited. Yeah. I'm really excited. Um <laughs> I volunteered in Seattle. I'm looking forward to being in Richmond. <laughs> and then at the age of 91, she had a major exhibition at the Smithsonian Renwick Gallery. Oh, that's so cool. And again, she's alive and she lives to see her work in the Smithsonian. That's insane. Yeah, that's huge. It was so great reading and researching her about her because it was like, oh, thank God this has a happy ending. Now, one thing I thought was really funny is I came across this quote by a really shitty white person that said about Maria that her work, her success is, quote, the result of an outside influence, the encouragement of white people interested in reviving aboriginal <sighs> arts. Fuck you. Like, again, white saviors trying to come in, Ugh. swagger with their big dicks, and be like, this is ours now. No, they're trying to compensate for their small dicks. I know. I know. But um, Maria, like you said, savvy businesswoman, she was able to capitalize on the fetishization of Native American work with her amazing pottery. And within her lifetime, she saw appreciation for her art. That's amazing. That's so important. Yeah. It's such a big deal. She passed away in 1980 leaving behind grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and also the people that she taught, you know, kind of keeping the work going too. Yeah, happy to say this one has a, you know, it's not a completely happy story, but happy ending. Thought it was a great way to kind of um, end on my end for our very first season. That is Maria Martinez and her her blackware or her black-on-black pottery from New Mexico. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm sorry it took me so long to get to the end. I'm sorry that I'm about to bring it down. That just means that our very first episode for January 2020, you're going to have to open up with something warm and fuzzy. I Basically, I told myself that I would feature her before the end of this year, and I kept putting it off because it was kind of hard for me personally, and it's really mm-hmm. close to home, but it's important to talk about. Unfortunately, it's hard to find a lot of personal details on her, so there will be a bit of science and social awareness sprinkled in. Hey. I'm all for that. I am going to warn listeners, there's a content warning, that there are heavy themes of depression and suicide that go along with my scientist. All right. So we're getting fucking heavy. We're getting, we're getting fucking heavy. All right. I'm strapped in. Let's do this. <laughs> I put my strap on to the side. I'm ready. So her name was Sophia Yin. She was a veterinarian, an applied animal behaviorist, an author, and a lecturer. She was born February 5th, 1966. So I know nothing about her family. In fact, it seems that she didn't keep a lot of people around. Uh, She didn't have a lot of close relationships, but she did have a lot of close relationships with animals. And her childhood dream of becoming a veterinarian became a reality in 1993 when she graduated from UC Davis in California with a doctor of veterinary medicine. She worked in private practice for a bit. But she started to notice that using medicine would only save a fraction of the animals that needed to be saved. Most of the animals euthanized were put down due to behavioral issues. Mm. Sophia would start to counsel owners on behavior trainings, and she used techniques that were taught to her by senior animal professionals, which seems legit, right? Mm. Except the problem here is that, to this day, animal behavior is so grossly misunderstood, even by professionals, and I use the professional loosely, Because unlike human behaviorists, psychologists, you don't need to have a degree or pass a board exam to call yourself a dog trainer, which is the first form of a dog behaviorist. It's the first line of defense. Okay. So if someone has a puppy, they take their brand new four-legged baby to a trainer at a pet store or a pet boarding facility. And if that trainer doesn't know what he or she's doing, they can grossly mess up fundamental years. And if the dog is already aggressive, like the owner is advised to fight back, assert his or her dominance, become the alpha wolf. This is not correct, and we will be backtracking to this in a second. Okay. So this misinformation epidemic can even come from a veterinary professional who has been practicing for decades simply because people default to veterinarians as if they know the behavior of an animal as well as they do the physiology of one. And if you think about it, you don't ask a pediatrician to tell you why your child is throwing tantrums at school every day. You're essentially referred to a child psychologist. Mm -hmm. And honestly... As someone who's a veterinary nurse for about six years, 
I've referred people with difficult dogs to several dog psychologists or behaviorists, which is what Sophia Yin was. And in those almost six years, I was laughed at every single time. You know, that doesn't surprise me because sharing with people how when we got our dog, we signed up for pet insurance right away. People were like, wait, what? That's a thing? I'd be like, yeah, like it's not a thing in this country, but you go anywhere else where people have their shit together and that's totally a thing. It's it's very real. People just don't understand it. Like um, my ex's grandma was trying to relate to me about like animals and she told me about a dog that was just super aggressive, but it was cute because it was a some sort of Lhasa Apso thing and when somebody referred her to a behaviorist, she was like, my dog doesn't need a psychologist. And she got really defensive. And I told her, I was like, you know, my dog went to one Mm -hmm. and it really helped. People get so weird about animals and it can be a lot. Well, I think in part, we don't prioritize mental health in this country for humans. So why would we even consider that for our animals? People look at animals sometimes as if they're just, just things. Yeah. It's not fun. So we snap back to young Sophia Yin and her dog, Max. Max was a 76-pound boxer who was lovable most of the time until you tried to get him to do something he didn't want to do. And then he would growl and snap, and the veterinarian she was working with advised her that if he continued this behavior, then he would probably need to be euthanized. Oh, shit. Okay. So she starts taking him to training. She went through 10 trainers. They all subscribed to the Alpha Wolf method. Yank his leash. Use a prong collar. The Alpha Roll, where you would roll the dog on his back to show his belly in submission. They even had her hang him from his collar until he passed out. There's no way in hell I'd be able to follow through with something like that. And I'm like, are you kidding? Are you, you're serious right now. That's You expect I'm paying you to tell me to do that right now. <laughs> And honestly, like, at that time, that was all apparently accepted behavior techniques. Okay, and this is the... You said she graduated in the 90s? In the 90s, yeah. So, yeah, so this isn't too far off no. from where we're at now. No. It's not like it's the 1890s. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it was about seven years before she found trainers that were working with methods that focused on rewarding good behaviors in a systematic fashion. So Max would start to get a little better with these trainers, and he did not fully dissipate his aggression due to the fact that he was like a 10-year-old boxer with little time left to learn, if you will. Yeah. Married with the fact that if he was misbehaving in class with these new trainers, no matter how diligent they were with rewarding good behaviors, they would also eventually resort to the alpha state if things got too intense. Okay. So the theory is based off of the thought that dogs evolved from wolves and that wolves, when observed in captivity, would engage in a competition to see who was on top. There are several holes in this theory. Mm-hmm. So one is that dogs did not evolve from wolves that we observed in the study that people talk about. A more social wolf-like creature, definitely, but they did not evolve from the wolves that we know today, and sight is the main reason to establish ourselves as the alpha. In fact, the wolves that exist today have evolved from their own ancestors and did not exist far enough back then from the dog to evolve from. So wolves are, if you will, a completely different Pokemon evolution from the dog. Okay. Okay. And honestly, point two is that even if the wolf-like creature the dogs did evolve from acted so similarly to the wolves today, the alpha structure only really exists in wolves that we keep in captivity. Yeah, it's a totally different social dynamic. They're forced to fight. A natural wolf pack in the wild actually usually consists of mom and dad and then the offspring of that pair. And once the offspring grows up, they don't fight. They go make their own family, much like we do as humans. So when we talk about Sophia Yin... Max was the catalyst for the spark of interest into animal behavior because she was originally just medicine. She saw how well the training that focused on positive reinforcement worked for Max, but it plateaued. Okay. She went back to school for a master's in animal science at UC Davis, focusing on animal behavior. So she would research vocal communication in dogs and took classes geared towards how and why behaviors developed. She studied and worked as a teaching assistant there for five years. She armed herself with a fear-free approach and operant conditioning. So what is operant conditioning? Yeah, I have no idea. So the quote here from the internet is a method of learning that occurs through rewards and punishments for behavior. Through operant conditioning, an association is made between a behavior and a consequence for that behavior. An undesirable attention-seeking behavior like barking extensively until you say hello 
the last thing you want to do is give that dog the attention, whether giving him like to shut up, just petting him or yelling at him to stop. That's you're still giving him the attention that he wants. Only when he's doing something you want, like calmly lying down, do you want to reward him with that attention, with that pet. So she combined this approach with fear-free handling. Her mindset was that most animals lash out when they are afraid or stressed, and she helped develop Mm -hmm. techniques to alleviate fear both in and out of the vet office. Sophia would find that animals she would deem stubborn would now willingly listen to her, and that animals who would show aggression would show less once they felt safe. That's such a big change. Yes. Yeah. No, it's... Yeah, just in your your mindset of how you go into it, how these creatures are going to respond to you and your energy. Right, 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 right. It's a whole new world. It's like seeing with a totally different sense. Like, I love her work so much, and I've spent a good chunk of my time as a nurse trying to work as Sophia Yin would, but there are obstacles, which I will get to in a second. Okay. Uh, I mean, this all seems... So much like common sense now, honestly, but it really wasn't a widespread Mm -hmm. practice. We go back to making your dog pass out by holding him in the air. Oh, jeez. Oh, my goodness. People are still trying to be the alpha wolf today, like Caesar Milan. Ah. Okay. Hey, what what about that that tool of a cat guy? He's just a tool. He doesn't care about anything. Okay. All right. (laughs) He's making more money. I haven't watched enough of those episodes to really see how I feel about how he feels with cats it's a totally different thing okay his actual behavioral he's very stress free which i like from what i understand but like i just can't it was just a personal thing all right all right that's cool we all have those moments (laughs) (laughs) guy fiari Uh, (laughs) oh poor guy um yeah i have so many people come to me and literally beat their animal in front of me because that was what was taught to them as to how to handle their dog they were like in the room with me as I'm asking questions about their animal and to get him to stop barking. It's a quick smack with his leash. Oh, my God. I hate it when I see people walking their dogs on like a standard, let's say, six foot leash. Mm-hmm. Right. And they yank like the dog stops to sniff something and they yank right away. They're like, stop it. Keep moving. Keep moving. I'm like, Holy fuck. Like, we are not be in tune with like, oh, I don't know, your dog's knees. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's very. Um... Something as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, I mean. People have no clue. No clue, Megan. So, Sophia was a behaviorist working out of her office in Davis, California for the rest of her life. But she also would travel and speak in lectures, hold seminars, teaching not just the general public about animal behavior, but also professional veterinary staff in continuing education lectures. So she's doing these talks and she's doing seminars and stuff all in the early 2000s at this point? Mm -hmm. That's where we're at? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. She wrote for pet magazines and blogs. She wrote and published several books. I actually own one. Uh, she produced and starred in several how-to DVDs on low-stress situations, desensitization for fearful pets, and opera conditioning. Yin served on the executive board of the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior. Um, she was on the American Association of Feline Practitioners Handling Guidelines Committee, which is really important because cats have a really hard time. Like, a really hard time when they go to the vet. It's so stressful for them. She even helped develop the training product called the Treat and Train. It was a remote-controlled, reward-based training system based off of operant conditioning. So that's cool. Okay. Yeah. She was world-renowned, Megan. She still is. Her goal was to provide mm-hmm. a better quality of life for these animals, to retrain an entire field of professionals to rethink how they went about interacting with them. And it's hard because retraining a veterinarian who's been practicing for decades, telling that individual and his staff that a designated cat room is needed because dog barks will present a threat to them and they will stand their ground. Um, Or that sometimes you just you don't need to use force, just some cheese to get a dog to sit still. There can be so much pushback and it can be tiring. It is tiring. You can kind of mirror that to the developments and how to handle, like, neurodiversity in the 1970s and 80s and kind of raising the awareness and pushing for deinstitutionalization for people who have, like, Down syndrome or autism. And it was something very similar. There was a lot of new thought out there of, gee, we don't just shove these people away and don't do anything with them because they're different. Right. How can we work with, you know, the way they think for a positive interaction for everyone? And it, it, yeah, it took decades and, you know, there's still lingering aspects of that in the United States. And that's just one little facet of, you know, the medical community in changing that approach. 
And just add like uh, like dogs to the mix, right? Yeah, and these are creatures who can't give you that vocal feedback as to you know no. what works and what doesn't. No, um, and I've told you time and time again that being in the veterinary field is too much. Even as the doctor, you're overworked with twelve-hour shifts, underpaid when you're in so much debt already, underappreciated because people think Google knows more than you do, and then you see animals who need your help who don't get it. So whether the owner decides they would rather a nail trim than a diagnostic blood test because it was vomiting or just that it's too late. Maybe the dog was abused so much that its behavior is too far gone and it poses a threat to itself and everyone around it. Or the owner took too long to bring an animal in and that autoimmune disease it's had for five years has done its job already. Mm-hmm. So adding reworking the way you handle animals into the mix can be exhausting. And a lot of professionals have too much going on, which is not something we want to say or talk about, but it's real. And it's just a cycle of shit and you're trapped. And the thing you went into this field Mm -hmm. to do, you're not able to effectively do as much as you thought you would. And maybe even cause some damage along the way because you accidentally made the trip to the vet terrifying. You have like six patients lined up. So you threw a muzzle on one trying to bite and... Held him down in a record 10 seconds flat, scaring the shit out of him. The literal shit, Megan. But you have to keep moving, and you feel like shit doing it. So, Sophia Yin was no different. She would dub the time she spent with Max as her caveman days. She felt like a literal Neanderthal. And she was one of the experts who spoke in a short documentary called Tough Love, a Meditation on Dominance in Dogs. It's a 30-minute documentary on how we as a society as a whole look at dogs, treat them, and train them. When she's on screen, Megan, you can you can literally see the regret on her face when she tells us about her past. Okay. So the woman who helped propel new veterinarians into an age where a cat ward is, like, practically mandatory. The woman whose book mm-hmm. helped me learn how to handle a stressed cat masterfully. The woman whose techniques I followed, along with the consultation of a behaviorist who worked very similarly as Sophia, allowed me to turn the aggressive behaviors of my dog into a manageable state. Like, her work helped me to keep Victor alive and happy and silly. Mm-hmm. But still, even she was hard on herself. And she wasn't able to beat the compassion fatigue that individuals in the industry suffer from. And in 2014, she committed suicide at the age of 48. And, I mean, from what you've told me, unfortunately, that's not surprising. And the numbers support it. Yeah. So she, she does live on, though. Her publishing company, Cattle Dog Publishing, is still being run by professionals who believe in her work. Uh, there's actually a Cyber Monday sale coming up if you're interested in animal behavior. Fun fact. Uh, <laughs> her effect on professionals and the way they look at animals and treat them, that's real and still going strong. And she's still helping to improve the quality of life that our companion animals receive. And that's important because they have no idea what's happening. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, she's helping people's quality of life, too. So when she took her life, the veterinary field as a whole was in mourning. Uh, She was a beloved woman, respected worldwide for the help she was able to give animals. And her death was, like, so public that it put a spotlight on depression and compassion fatigue in the industry. Suddenly, Mm -hmm. people started talking about this issue that people didn't want to talk about or think about. That the hours may be long, you may be underpaid, you may be in a toxic work environment, you may be at risk of bites and transmittable diseases, you may see hundreds of animals get euthanized, but that's just the job. That's just how it is, and you move on. But now, there's awareness. There's a universal understanding that if you're in the field, suicide is also a risk. There's a movement called Not One More Vet, which is exactly what it sounds like, and her name is often cited when people talk about mental health. So there are support groups, there are awareness seminars that you take, and I would like to think that even if her story is sad, that the loss of someone so great was able to allow people in the field to not just try to increase the animal's quality of life, but also their own lives. Well, I feel like, in part, this hits so close to home, because being in the field, like you said, for six years, you've experienced it firsthand, and I'm sure there's a lot of emotions and situations that you feel you can relate to for what contributed to her you know kind of seeing that way out and that's what makes it ugly and i mean that's i feel like why you're sharing it because it's not pleasant but it's important for people to be aware of people need to know and that's not just the veterinary field if you're having a hard time at work please speak up yeah your work shouldn't shouldn't do this to you Mm -hmm. it's difficult 
but it's real. And please hug your vet and your vet tech staff if they're huggers. <laughs> Send them some uh, holiday cookies or something. Do you have do you have numbers for suicide rates within the veterinary community? Because I feel like most people aren't aware of just how alarmingly high it is. From what I remember, it's like one in six vets. Female veterinarians are 3.5 times more likely, and male veterinarians are 2.1 times as likely to die from suicide. Oh, there you go. Oh. <laughs> Not the numbers that we want to be leading in, like, at all. No. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So uh, let them know you care. Thank them for all yeah. their hard work. And don't try to aggressively assert yourself over your animals. <laughs> <laughs> Don't choke them and make them pass out. Yeah. I mean, what you do in your bedroom is your own thing, but do not do it to your dog. Nope. <laughs> uh, uh, fuck. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, guys. You know what? Everything in life is not warm and fuzzy. And I feel like the people that we've done, for the most part, yeah, for the most part, they do receive recognition in their life for the work they do and they see the impact. But, I mean, life takes a toll. And... The shit happens and it's unpleasant, but it it's reality. And I, she saw she saw the recognition. She knew that people were listening. She knew that people yeah cared. I think uh, like one of her friends, they they weren't even close, but I guess they were like visiting, and uh, she said that Sophia was kind of torn. Like she was having a hard time trying to continue the business, but also keeping her vision alive she thought that it wasn't staying alive and if she knew how much we rely on her fear-free and her operant conditioning if she knew that it was slowly but surely like moving forward I think she would be happy Mm -hmm. because I like honestly I'm not even kidding without her I would probably have had to euthanize Victor. So for those who aren't familiar, uh, Milena adopted a dog a few years back. Super friendly, super great, little, well, not so little ball of death energy. (laughs) Um, And within a few months, he got settled with Milena and um, your other, your your co-dog parent (laughs) and um, became aggressive towards anyone around them and then particularly within your home yeah to the point you couldn't have friends or family over without him showing aggression or you know having people approach him on the street or on the sidewalk um so i mean i know you've been working towards modifying those behavioral things and you've made strides introducing him to other people it's taken time my my boyfriend can now he can now walk into my apartment without Victor losing his mind. Like, he'll he'll come over and, like, try to be a chaperone, but he won't lunge and he won't bite. But that strides from what he would have done if my boyfriend had walked in a year ago, two years ago. Mm-hmm. I think your maintenance man who surprised him once is still on the fence. Oh, no. My maintenance man, he loves Victor. Every time he sees me, he asks me how Victor's doing. Nice. Good. I worked with a veterinary recently before I quit who told me that she didn't think it was necessarily a bad idea to euthanize dogs like Victor. Mm. like And that, that was just frustrating enough because that's my son. But then I told the maintenance guy about it, and he was so mad for me. He was ready to fight. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, what did she say? <laughs> and I mean, given this is a dog that has inadvertently barricaded him in your kitchen before... Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very funny that even he's like, look, I feared for my life that one time, but it's cool. <laughs> yeah. We just surprised one another. That's all. We're good now. We're good. Um, but yeah, that's, oh that's all I've got. Just hug your, hug your vet staff, guys. Let them know that you appreciate the work that they do. Definitely underappreciated work. Um, I'm glad you shared it. I'm glad, you know, hopefully people can gain a little bit more insight into just what it, what goes into it and the toll it can take. That's the goal. Um, as always, if you guys have made it this far, 
especially on this episode. That was a little bit of a doozy. It was. Um, you guys are really amazing. And I say it every episode, and I mean it every episode, and I mean it even more every episode because we didn't expect this. You guys keep coming back. <laughs> and I'm so excited to start next year with season two and to share more amazing people and Milana, for the love of God, let's like make it chill for the first month. How does that sound? I'm okay with that. Let's make it chill. All right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> we'll kind of ease into it with some nice warm and fuzzy stuff. <laughs> so as always, if people want to learn more about the women that we've covered this episode, where can they go, Milana? We have a website. It's uh, myfavoritefeminist.com. Uh, we have a Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminist. You can tweet us at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. That's at Milena Megan. We have an email, info at MyFavoriteFeminist.com. You can listen to us on Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes. Uh, we still want to know if you have other platforms that you like to listen on. Let us know. I don't know. What should we ask people? You know what? What artwork would you describe as sexy? I like that. Or what's what's sexy to you? I, need, I don't know. What's it? <laughs> it's like a block of Velveeta cheese, and you're like, oh, that's sexy right there. You know what? Different strokes for different people. Whatever it works for you. Yeah. So literally, just go ahead and let us know on any of the ways I just told you how to reach out to us. And we hope to see you in the next year. Have a happy new year, guys. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait. Until then, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, Merry Christmas. We'll see you guys next year. Bye. Bye. We did it. Oh, my God. I can't wait to pop a bottle of champagne. I'm getting the good shit. (laughs) You giggle, but I am getting a bottle of champagne. For New Year's? <gasps> because it's it'll be the one year anniversary, and it's also going to be our best friend anniversary ever. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm be fucking popping bottles. Hmm. Popping bottles and that. You know you want to keep singing it like a G six, like a G six. You missed it. You forgot the words. Getting slizzard. Oh jeez, I haven't heard that song in forever. <laughs> I have it on a playlist. Oh my. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill the okay. word.